Today, all around the world, Jesus' followers are going to be focusing in on the accounts of his incarnation. And I personally never grow tired of those narratives. Even though I'm so familiar with them, I can anticipate the next words before they're read. True confession, I walk about whistling Christmas carols in July and August. Now, one reason for my enduring appreciation is my conviction, developed over many years, that God's Word always rewards repeat visitors. Those who drop by God's Word regularly eventually discover that words you've heard 50 times can suddenly shout some new significant truth into your soul the 51st time you hear them. So today we're going to look at familiar words, not new words. They're words that were first spoken by an angel who was serving in the public relations department of the kingdom. The audience was a crew of tired, hard-edged, freaked out, agricultural workers, some of whom were likely a bit inebriated. But as you'll see, the angel's words were also meant for us and not because we're slightly inebriated. Those words are found in the gospel according to Luke, the second chapter, the 10th and 11th verses. Listen again to familiar words. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." Today we're going to be focusing on don't be afraid. If you're familiar with God's Word, you know that He frequently repeats Himself, and for good reason. Given who God is, given who we are, we struggle to hear Him. We struggle to understand His words and to apply them. We struggle to grasp what God is up to. We struggle to recognize His goodness when life doesn't feel all that good. And we struggle to remain hopeful when our society appears to be unraveling at the seams. And we struggle to trust Him in moments of difficulty when we shout objections that our minds previously only whispered. Now, given our struggles and given the unprecedented event of the virgin birth, it should come as no surprise that God repeated Himself in the days leading up to and immediately following Jesus' arrival. Specifically, He kept saying the same four words, do not be afraid. He said it to Joseph. He said it to Zacharias. He said it to Mary. He said it to the shepherds, do not be afraid. And He's still saying it to us through His Word because we desperately need to hear it. Because if you've been paying attention to what's happening in our culture and in our world, you know that humanity is plagued by fear. It's been called the epidemic of the 21st century. It's widespread. It's contagious. Try as we will. We can't shake it. And as we attempt to cope with it and find we can't do so successfully, we get real ugly with one another. If fear were a river, it would be fed by several tributaries. The first is internal, the way that we respond to past pains, past abuses, past disappointments. 
We often do so in a very unhealthy and destructive fashion. And I've dealt with more than one person who had built walls to keep further pain out of their life, only to discover that those walls served to preserve the pain that's already inside their life. And when we make those attempts and we are disappointed, we struggle to hold on to our hope. We struggle to expect the best, and fear begins to settle in. A second stream that feeds fear is external. There are people and organizations in our world that knowingly seek to manipulate our perceptions and manipulate our emotions so that they can profit from our anxieties. You see, fear-mongering is big business in this culture. Politicians win power and wealth by fueling concerns over possible threats to our well-being and to our future. Special interest groups raise money by exaggerating the possibility of some impending disaster. News organizations create new scares and new villains on a daily basis in order to boost the bottom line. But the primary reason that the epidemic of fear denies all of our denials and resists all of our homemade remedies is found in the fact that fear is the inevitable consequence and continuing legacy of what the Bible calls sin, departure from God's intent for our life. The largest and the primary roots of fear are spiritual, not psychological, not emotional, not political, not economic, and not society. And those spiritual roots run deep. They reach all the way back into Genesis, where the first and immediate consequence of Adam and Eve's sin was their fear of their loving Creator, fear that led them to hide from God. And people have been hiding from God ever since. Once that fear was unleashed, it swept forward through human history like a tsunami. And the pages of Scripture and human history record its destructive legacy. And fear is not going to be going away anytime soon. I don't say that because I'm a pessimist. I say that because I'm a biblical realist. You see, humanity's attempts to find the cure for an epidemic that has its roots in the rejection of God will never prove effective as long as humanity insists upon antidotes that are rooted in the rejection of God. You can't find the cure for the problem in the same thing that produced it. I also don't anticipate we're going to uncover a way to defeat fear anytime soon because of something Jesus said. Jesus said one of the signs of the end of the age, notice the end of the age, would be men and women's hearts failing them because of fear. He indicated fear would drain the human race emotionally and even lead to premature death. And he went on to say that when this age finally does come to an end, and it's time for every man and woman to stand before the living God by themselves, no class action, no group judgment, when men and women stand before God in final judgment, 
Those who rejected the love of God in life are described in Revelation 21 with several adjectives, but it's significant that the first one is the fearful. John said, I looked at that moment and I saw the fearful. And all of that serves as a sobering reminder that fear is one of Satan's most effective weapons because it leaves the unbelieving to avoid God's transforming love and presence, and it leads the believing to doubt God's transforming promises. Now, fear comes in many flavors. There's the fear of failure. That's one of the popular ones. But there's also the fear of success and the fear of loss and the fear of pain and the fear of people and the fear of being alone and the fear of relationships, the fear of being unloved, the fear of change, the fear of catastrophic events, the fear of losing significance, losing your abilities, and then the fear of death. And add to that the unhealthy and negative and uninformed fears of God, fear that He might not love us, fear that He might not forgive us, fear that He might not accept us, fear that He might not deliver the goods if we put our lives under His care. Well, we're not here to leave you mired in fear today. So in a few moments, I'll be coming back to share with you what Christmas has to say to our fears. And it is incredibly good news. Those repeated injunctions and invitations to reject fear that regularly punctuate the Christmas narrative serve to remind us of good news, the good news that fear can be rejected. Because fear is first and foremost an attitude, not an outcome. It's a negative way of evaluating things. It's not a final reality. As I noted earlier, our fears are rooted in our estrangement from our Creator. And the fact that that estrangement leads to us losing sight of our divinely, divinely intended identity. And something can be done about both of those problems. Something can be done precisely because something already has been done. When humanity needed help from beyond ourselves, help from beyond ourselves arrived. Our fallen condition our frequent negative conditioning doesn't have to imprison us in negativity and fear. It doesn't have to set our agenda because Jesus' incarnation affirmed God's stubborn dedication to our ultimate restoration. Now, I'm going to be honest. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Sometimes things just happen. And after 40 years of teaching, they tend to happen rather frequently. Jesus' incarnation affirmed God's stubborn dedication to our renewal. And I say that because Satan went, went to great lengths to prevent the incarnation. He attacked the faith of Abraham, knowing that it would be from Abraham's descendants that the Messiah of the world would come. He attempted to destroy Abraham's descendants time and again. He led Abraham's descendants into sin, thereby compromising their role in history. He led their most 
famous ruler, David, into sin and led one of David's descendants into the place where he was cursed, thereby jeopardizing Jesus' ability to be the descendant of David and the Messiah of the world. And he led a paranoid puppet politician to murder every Jewish male infant born around the time of Jesus' arrival. Yet despite all of those attempts and many others, the angel was able to announce to the shepherds, today a Savior is born. When you consider everything that the forces of evil did to stop that from happening. I rather suspect that when the angel made that announcement, the angel didn't make it like some gentle greeting on the front of a card. I rather suspect the angel announced it in fist pump fashion. Despite everything that evil intended and that Satan did, today a Savior is born. God has kicked butt and taken names. You see, in Jesus' birth, God overcame the worst that Satan and the world could do. And having done so, he can easily do it again in you. Because he's still stubborn. Once you commit yourself to him, no event in your past, in your present, or that awaits you in the future will send him running. Now, in addition to affirming God's stubborn dedication, as I said earlier, Jesus' arrival affirmed our ultimate restoration. That's the restoration God desires for us, an ultimate restoration. Ultimate because it isn't merely cosmetic. Ultimate because it isn't temporary. Ultimate because it addresses the ultimate source of our fears, our estrangement from God. It does it effectively. It does it once and for all. And the results are guaranteed for eternity. You don't have to extend the warranty on what God wants to do on your life. One of the passages of Scripture that's read often this time of year is Galatians 4. It's read because it announces that Jesus came in the fullness of time when everything was right. But it goes on to say that he came that we might experience adoption as God's children. Now, it's important to understand why he chose that word and what it means. It doesn't mean that Christians are people who have been adopted into God's family. They are not. Jesus made it clear you have to be born into God's family. Nobody's adopted into God's family. You have to be born into God's family. That's why Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We all start life as God's creatures, but we have to make a choice if we want to become born again as one of God's children. So why did Paul use the word adoption? Well, adoption in his culture referred to that moment when the rightful heir of a family estate came of age and received the family inheritance. It's a word that refers to a final successful outcome. So it shouts to us that Jesus' incarnation not only meant that it's possible for us to become God's children, it also means that the final destiny of those who have been born again is guaranteed. 
God's children are destined to join Jesus as joint heirs of the family inheritance. What is that inheritance? A restored creation, a restored earth, a restored universe. Everything restored back to what God intended when He started this. So Christmas affirms that when God starts a good work in you, He will complete it, and the end of the project will blow you away. So Christmas is God's way of saying something that C.S. Lewis said many years later, our failures are never final, but God's promises are. They're final. You may get bloodied and muddied at times as you attempt to follow Jesus. You may stumble. You may get onto a detour. But no setback will undo you because Jesus will keep picking you up, brushing you off, giving you encouragement, giving you correction, giving you advice, and then walking with you. You see, when it comes to true success in life, The outcome for God's people is settled. It's guaranteed. And that's critical to overcoming fear. Here's why. The end that we envision for ourselves, where we see ourselves landing one day, that determines every decision we make along the way. And it's also important because if the end we envision envision for ourselves is positive and hopeful, then we can live with hope and confidence. And hope and confidence are essential to overcoming fear. See, you can't drive fear out of your life by saying, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. Because in that very moment, where is your focus? It's on your fear. No, if you want fear to be gone from your life, you have to suffocate it. You have to rob it of the air that it breathes. You have to deny it what it needs to continue to exist. And when you live your life in hope, and when you live your life in confidence, grounded in the reality of Christ and the promises of God, you suffocate fear. You are able to look at life scenarios and say, this looks bad, this feels even worse, but God is with me, and I know He's going to see me through. Now, knowing that, responding to that, two different things. The best cure in the world is utterly useless unless you appropriate it. The Old Testament book of Proverbs tells us that a life lived in fear is a life that's only half-lived. And it's an accurate assessment. Fear weighs us down, dogs our steps, drains our energies, inhibits our actions, cripples our potential, fosters bad judgment, poisons relationships, robs us of peace, but worse, it can lead us to reject God's love. That's why someone once appropriately described fear as the face of hell. And because we've all experienced fear, that means we've all seen hell in our own hearts. But Christmas reminds us we don't have to fix our gaze on hell. We don't have to make fear our focus. 
Christmas is God's way of inviting us to focus instead on his heart. Because Christmas reveals the heart of God. God became one of us without ceasing to be himself so that we could become one with him and cease to live under the tyranny of fear. I've always felt that the four most beautiful, inviting, life-changing words in Scripture are found in the passage we read today. But they're not the four words we've focused on thus far. Do not be afraid. They're four words that come later. For you, a Savior. For you. Remember, the angel was speaking that to shepherds. Shepherds were at the bottom socially in that day. Because of their tough life, Their habit of being heavy drinkers, it was assumed you could tell when a shepherd was lying, his lips would be moving. The truth is, shepherds were not allowed to bear witness in a court of law, even if they had been eyewitnesses to an event, because everybody felt the word of a shepherd is useless. And yet it was to the shepherds that the angel said, for you, not for humanity, not for others. Not for people better than you, not for people different than you, but for you, a Savior. And Savior is a powerful word. A powerful word. Jesus may have been meek in that he tended and planned to restrain his power in the face of evil and express it through love and sacrifice, but Jesus was not weak. Even when they crucified him, he was still holding the world together by the word of his power. Savior is a strong word. It says that despite the pain of your past, despite the lies of current culture, despite the power of sin, you can be saved from the icy grip of fear and a life devoid of meaning and significance. And all you have to do is ask. It's that simple. Because God has already done all the heavy lifting. And Scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not some, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you'll do that, then you'll understand why the writer of the song we've just heard, O Little Town of Bethlehem, you understand why the writer put these words amongst his refrains. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Our need of hope, it was met in Jesus' arrival. Freedom from fear, it was met in Jesus' arrival. So the key thing is, if there is for you a Savior, have you made him your Savior? To fail to do so is to miss eternal life and to miss the whole point of why he came. So, In whatever way works best for you, I want to encourage all of you to just create a place of prayer and focus for these last couple moments. If you're already a follower of Jesus, pray for anyone in this room who hasn't yet come 
to that point. Pray that this will be the day when they'll cross the threshold out of fear and into eternal hope, out of darkness into light, out of death into eternal life. Pray hard, pray mightily, pray passionately because somebody's eternal destiny may hang in the balance. And if you're one of those who came today knowing something, maybe virtually nothing, about Jesus, but God in His goodness has been reaching out to your heart during this service, and you've sensed that, and you want to respond positively, then just express several things to the Lord in the quietness of your heart where He knows your every thought. Don't worry about the words being polished. He's not looking for polish. He's looking for faith. But in whatever words you find available, simply confess to Him that up until this point you have lived your life without Him. Oh yes, He exists, but you've never placed your faith in Him. You've, you've never entered into a relationship with Him. Confess that. The Bible calls that sin because it's a departure from the wonderful and awesome things God meant for us. And then confess that you want Him to be your Lord and Savior. And express your belief in His resurrection. Because Scripture says, as many as confess Him as Lord and believe in their heart that He was raised from the dead will be saved. And then ask Him to save you. To save you from a life without purpose and meaning. To save you from a life lived without a loving relationship with your Creator. Ask Him for that new birth spiritually. Commit yourself to follow Him. To confess Him before others. And then thank Him for hearing your prayer for pursuing your heart and for loving you before you ever loved him. Father, I pray for any man, woman, child who today called upon Jesus. I rejoice in the fact that having done so, you have entered their life. I rejoice in the great difference that's going to make for time and for eternity. I pray that your spirit would seal their decision to their heart I pray that they would find a place of fellowship with other Jesus followers where they can be grounded in the Word and encouraged in their walk. And I pray that they would become contagious carriers of the good news that we don't have to live in fear. Fear has been defeated once for all through the hope, the life, the promises, and the security that Jesus brought when he stepped into this world. Thank you, Father, for stepping into the world, for bringing the help we needed when it had to come from outside of ourselves. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' Messiah's name, amen. Amen.